be turning in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, as this morning we'll be closing out chapter 2 together. And as we begin, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before you again as we seek to open your word before us now, as we seek to continue to look at what Paul and ultimately what you have to to show us here in his letters to the Galatians that he wrote long ago. Father, I pray that you would come, that you would fill us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would fill me and enable me to teach and to preach your word with clarity in a way that makes these truths plain before your people. And Father, as you know, the the passage that we are going to be looking at this morning is theologically thick. And so I ask that you would be with us, that you would help us to understand and to see the flow of what Paul is saying here, and that we would give glory to the Lord Jesus and that we would receive these words with great joy. I pray that for your people as they sit before me now. May your word accomplish its purposes, O Lord. I pray again, as I often do as I stand before them, I pray that it would humble the proud, that it would strengthen the weak, that it would bring back the wanderer, and that it would convict and save the lost. And it's in Christ's name we ask and pray these things. Amen. Last week in our time together, we were looking at uh, verses 11 to 14. And within verses 11 to 14, we saw Paul's opposition to Peter because he was not acting in step with the truth of the gospel. That's what we were looking at. That's what we were spending our time on last week. Peter had come to Antioch for this visit for whatever reason. We're not sure why, but he had come to visit the the brothers there in Antioch. He was eating with the Gentiles for a while whenever he was first there, but then he drew back. And in drawing back through his actions, he was not in step with the truth of the gospel. Now, as we pick up in these verses... We're going to see that Paul is continuing his his speech, or he's still addressing Peter in these verses. He's still talking to Peter. And you can clearly see that in verses 15 and 16. As we're going to read in a moment, you'll be able to clearly see that he's addressing Peter there. And also, in verses 17 to 21, he's still going to be addressing Peter there, but not as clear. And I'll talk about that a little bit more as we get to those verses. But I meant to bring this up last week towards the end of my sermon, but forgot to bring that in. These verses, the reason why I put 15 to 21 together and didn't handle verses 15 and 16 with 11 and 14, is because here Paul is using them as a transitional moment. Now you remember that we've been talking about how chapters 1 and 2 are primarily about Paul's defense against himself and his defense against the gospel message that he preaches. That's what he's primarily been doing in chapters 1 and 2. 
But now, here in verses 15 to 21, he's going to use what he said to Peter, what was said in Antioch. He's going to use that to now transition to what he's about to start doing in chapters 3 and 4, which is arguing to the Galatian Christians and to you that Scripture has always pointed forward to Christ, specifically talking about the law. So he's going to be transitioning from chapters 1 and 2, his defense against his defense of himself, his gospel message, to defending that Scripture always pointed to Christ, specifically the law. And the way that we're going to walk through these verses, this passage is in two parts. In verses 15 to 16, we're going to see Paul laying out the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel, which he has referred to twice now. We saw it last week in verse 14, where he he says, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And then week before last, we saw it whenever he was describing his second trip to Jerusalem where he had an encounter with some false brothers there. And he said that they were putting pressure on him. But yet he did not give way so that he could preserve the truth of the gospel. And so now here in verses 15 and 16, he's going to lay that out. What is the truth of the gospel? He's going to show us in verses 15 and 16. Laying out what the truth of the gospel is. Is. And then in verses 17 to 21, we're going to see that Paul is answering to a criticism that was being made against that gospel message that he's going to lay out in verses 15 and 16. So let's read these verses together and then we'll begin walking through them. And I'm going to begin in verse 11 in the reading. Also, if you're visiting with us, I am reading from what's called the ESV translation, which just means English Standard Version. If you would like to follow along in the translation I'm reading, that's the translation that the Pew Bible, the black Bible that's in front of you, that's the translation it's in. So just put that out there for your information. Beginning in verse 11, Paul writes, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I, Paul, saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. 
For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul begins in verse 15 by saying, continuing his his conversation with Peter there, he says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So me and you, Peter, Paul and Peter, me and you, we ourselves are Jews by birth. We were born Jewish men. And also we grew up abiding by the law. You know, the not perfectly, of course, as we know, as we've been talking about, but they grew up abiding by the law, keeping the the ceremonial laws, the dietary laws. They grew up keeping these things. So he says that they're Jews by birth and they're not Gentile sinners. And what does he mean by that? What does he mean by saying we are Jews by birth and we're not Gentile sinners? I mean, is he picking on the Gentiles in this moment like, Okay, yeah, we may be sinners, but the Gentiles, they are especially sinners. You know, more sinful than we are. No, what Paul means here, when he refers to Gentile sinners, he's referring to those who were not born with a Jewish ethnicity and grew up not adhering to the law of Moses. That is, they... They lived in a way that they didn't observe the law. They didn't keep the ceremonial laws. They didn't keep the dietary laws. Paul and Peter are not like that. They were not born that way. They were born Jewish men who grew up keeping the law, adhering to the sacrifice, the sacrificial system, the dietary laws, and things like that. So they are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet... In verse 16, yet we know again, you and me, Peter, Peter and Paul, you and me know, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Now I meant to mention a moment ago, that definition that I just gave of Gentile sinners, you need to keep that in mind because whenever we get to verse 17, in a moment, what Paul means there by the word sinners is going to make a big difference or it's going to affect your understanding by what he meant in verse 15. So Gentile sinners in verse 15 affects what he means in verse 17. But in verse 16 he says, Yet we know, you and me, Peter, that a person is not justified. Pause there for a moment. I've been using this word quite often as we've been walking through Paul's letter to the Galatians. I've been using the word justified, throwing it out here and there. And I believe I talked a little bit about what it means in the first couple of messages. But this is the first time that Paul himself uses this word. This is the first time that he uses it. 
And he throws it out a lot. Just in this passage. Three times this word is used in verses 15 and 16. And then it's also used again in verse 21 where you see the word righteousness in the ESV translation. Righteousness there refers to justification. So this is an important word. So what does it mean? Justification means to be counted righteous before God or to be declared righteous before God. That's what justification means. And this is why this word is in our purpose statement. Remember what our purpose statement is for the letter? There is only one gospel. And that gospel teaches... Now look at me, I'm I'm forgetting the verse. There is only one gospel, and that gospel teaches that you can only be justified before God by faith, through grace, adding alone there, by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, therefore walk in the freedom that it gives. Now I have to mention a mistake that I made in the purpose statement. And I noticed it as I came to this passage and was studying it this past week. And it's specifically the order that I I put faith and grace in. So grace should come before faith does. And I think the reason why I ended up putting faith before grace is because of how much Paul uses the word in his letter to the Galatians. He uses faith way more than he uses grace. And so I think I got caught up in that and I put faith before grace. So go back in your notes if you were writing writing the purpose statement down and put grace before faith. Because you are saved by God's grace. He has provided grace for you, doing what you do not deserve. And the way that you receive that grace... It's through faith, through your trust in what He has done. On the basis of Christ and Him alone, what He has done, and all of that is to the glory of God alone. So that is where our purpose statement really finds its meaning. In this word justification, there's only one gospel, and that gospel teaches that a person can only be justified before God by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis or in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So Paul says here in verse 16, Yet we know, Peter, that a person is not justified. He's not declared righteous by works of the law or doing all of those things. Even though we were born Jewish men, and grew up keeping the law, the sacrificial system, the dietary laws, the ceremonial law, we know that justification is not found there. It's not found in those things. But through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not found in works of the law, but it's found through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he continues, so we... Again, Peter and Paul. So we also have believed 
in Christ Jesus. He's making it personal here for both him and Peter. We understand this. We know it's truth. It's solid. It's firm. It's doctrine. But then he makes it personal. So we have also believed. This is where our trust is, Peter. So also we have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And in that last part of verse 16, he makes it universal. He says, no one will be justified by works of the law. And as Paul writes this verse, he has passages like Psalm 143, verse 2 in mind. Where in Psalm 143, verse 2, you see that it says, No one living is righteous. Also having in mind passages like Psalm 14, where for a good amount of that passage, David is expounding or talking about how no one stands righteous before God, that all have sinned. And of course, the most well-known out of all of them, Paul writes something similar in Romans chapter 3, where he says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So righteousness, justification, being declared righteous before God is not found in anything that you can do. Now I realize that you and I in our culture, in America, we are not tempted to keep this sacrificial law. You know, the law of Moses, the dietary laws, the sacrificial system, the, the ceremonial law. We're not tempted to do those things. I don't, I don't see anybody who's tempted to go out in their backyard, build an altar, and start making sacrifices so that they can be counted righteous before God. We're not tempted by those things. They were. This was fresh in their minds. But what are we tempted to do? We were talking about this a little bit last week in our message together. We may not be tempted in the same way they were, but don't we tend to think that you know, by, by coming to church, by giving devotion to God, by reading our Bibles, by giving to other people, by living good and moral lives, by loving our wives, by loving our, our husbands, by loving our children, by you know, all of these works that we can do, don't we like to think that you know, on the days when I do all those things, God's kind of, you know, He's smiling a little bit more than on the days when I don't do them. We think that. I'm guilty of that. There, there are some mornings when I wake up and I do not feel like a Christian. Because I am totally aware of my frailty, my sin, and in that moment it's very easy to think, well, you know what, if I sit down, if I read my Bible, or if I, if I call somebody of the church and talk to them, or if I, if I go and pray for somebody, or if I do a good deed, then that kind of makes up for you know, how I woke up this morning not feeling like a Christian. You know, If I do all these other things, man, I feel like a Christian now. It doesn't work like that. Because what does Paul say? He says, no one will be justified by works of the law. That includes the law of Moses or any law that you make up in your mind. 
that you think you can do that God will accept. That He's going to be somehow impressed by what you offer Him. It falls flat, friends. It doesn't work. No one will be justified by works of the law. It is only found by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis in Christ alone, and that all results in the glory of God alone. It does not make much of you. You are not impressive. It makes much of God and what He has done for you. It makes much of Christ and His works on our behalf. So Paul makes that clear in verses 15 to 16. That is the truth of the gospel. That's the truth of the gospel that he's been referring to. That's the truth of the gospel that he's been defending against these false brothers. That's the truth of the gospel that he's defending here as he's writing to the Galatians. Those Judaizers that came in were trying to distort the gospel. This is what this is the truth that they're trying to distort. They're trying to add works to it. But Paul is defending this truth, the truth of the gospel. But even though Paul he makes this clear, he lays it out, he explains the truth of the gospel, what God has done, there are people who still seek to criticize the gospel. There are people who still seek to criticize the good news of what Christ has done on our behalf. And we see that beginning in verse 17. In verse 17, we're going to see the criticism that's laid down at the gospel, how these people, possibly the Judaizers, possibly the false brothers that were there in Antioch, we're going to see that that criticism laid out. And Paul's going to start defending it again. He's going to give an answer to it. And like I was talking about a moment ago, he's still addressing Peter and the brothers there at Antioch. I mean, it's not as clear as in verses 15 and 16 where he says, we ourselves, or yet we know, so we also. But again, remember... These are transitional verses. Paul is using these passages, these verses, to transition from what he's been doing to what he's about to be doing. And so I think what he's doing is he's taking what happened there, he's giving the content, but he's putting it in different words. Does that make sense? Hopefully. So in verse 17, what's the criticism? Let's read it together. He says, But if, In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? And he responds, certainly not. So this is is how the criticism was going. This is how they were laying it before uh, Paul and the early Christians who preached the gospel. They were saying, Paul, When you preach that, when you preach that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by any works that we do, aren't you endorsing Christ as a servant of sin? Aren't you saying that Jesus is somehow becoming a servant of sin? That He's endorsing it? Now, how? 
How were, how were they getting this in their minds? How were they hearing the gospel message and saying, you're making Christ an endorser of sin? He says, if in our endeavor, if our seeking to be justified in Christ, referring to him and Peter specifically, we too were found to be sinners. Sinners referring back to what we saw in verse 15, Gentile sinners, those who did not live by the law, they did not adhere to the law, they did not keep the ceremonial laws, they did not keep the sacrificial laws, dietary laws. If through being justified, we, were be, we are being found like that because in being justified in Christ, He sets you free of those things. You don't have to keep the sacrificial law. You don't have to keep the dietary law. You don't have to keep the ceremonial law. So Peter and Paul were in a way becoming like Gentile sinners because they were living like them, because they were set free, right? But the Jews or the Judaizers or these false brothers, they were seeing that and saying, whoa, 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 you can't do that. If you do that, then you're making little of the law. You're saying that you don't need it. They were failing to see that Christ has accomplished it for them. They were failing to see that Christ has fulfilled those things. And so they were accusing Paul and Peter and other Christians and saying, you are making little of the law. And you are just you know, acting however you want to. Living however you want to. You're not obeying God. That's what he means by saying, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we, were, we too were found to be sinners as Christ and a servant of sin. But what is his answer? Certainly not. That's not true. Christ is not a servant of sin. He's not endorsing sin. On the contrary, continuing in verse 18, on the contrary, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now what does that mean? What is Paul rebuilding here? What is he speaking of rebuilding there? Well, he's talking about the law. Like what Peter was doing last week whenever we were going through those verses. Peter, through his actions of leaving table fellowship with the Gentiles, was rebuilding the dietary law. He was rebuilding the law of Moses. Because by his actions, he was saying, I need to do this, you need to do this, in order to be justified or be made right with God. So he was rebuilding the law in that moment. He was rebuilding it. He was saying that I need this. But if you do that, if you rebuild what was torn down, what Christ has torn down, you know, through His perfect life and His death and His resurrection, fulfilling the law, keeping it, He tore it down. He freed Christians from it. If you rebuild what you tore down, then you prove yourself to be a transgressor. Because when you put yourself back under the law, then you are most seen to be a sinner. Because who is most clearly to be seen sinning? Isn't it the one who's under the law? Isn't it the one that the law is testifying against? 
Not the one who's not under the law. When you rebuild the law and put yourself back under the law, all the law is doing is saying, you're a sinner. You can't keep me. You can't accomplish the law. You can't adhere to it. You are a sinner. That's what Paul means by saying that if I rebuild that, if I rebuild the law, what Christ has torn down, what He has torn down through the works of Christ, then I prove myself to be a transgressor. Because one of the purposes of the law was to put a death sentence on everyone. It was to show you that, hey, God is holy, you are not. You can't keep the law. This is what God expects, this is what He, this is what he requires, and you can't do it. That's one of the purposes. I'm going to name the other purpose here in a moment. So one of the purposes was the law showed you that you were a sinner, that you have failed, you've fallen short. And that's what Paul means, continuing now in verse 19, where he says, For through the law I died to the law. So Paul came to understand this. You know, through his faith in Christ, God revealing it to him, he came to understand that through the law, He in fact died to the law. The law put a death sentence upon Paul, telling him that he couldn't keep it. That he in fact had fallen short and he deserved to die. The law showed Paul that. But in understanding that, in understanding that it has in fact put a death sentence on him, he says what? So that I might live to God, which is the other purpose of the law. It declares a death sentence upon all those who would seek to follow it. It shows you that you fall short, but then it also projects you in the right direction. It it projects you in the way of Christ. It says, hey, you try to keep me, you're going to face death because you can't keep it. But look to the one who has. Look to the one who it points to, who has fulfilled it which is Christ. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. Now how how does Paul die? I mean, he doesn't literally die or he wouldn't be writing these words, right? He would have been dead. So how does he die? How does he die to the law? He tells us in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When Jesus came in the form of a man, being 100% God, 100% man, when He came, He lived for you. If you're a Christian, Christ lived for you. His obedience was for you. Christ was perfect. He didn't need to prove that to God. He was already perfect. He did not need to to prove that in coming down here and living among us that He was in fact perfect. He lived for you. He, He put Himself under the law so that His perfect obedience would then count for you. And when He died, when He was crucified on the cross, He died for you. He took 
the death penalty that we were talking about a moment ago that the, that the law puts on everyone. He took that death penalty for you. And He took it for Paul. That's what he means by saying, I've been crucified with Christ. My old self, my old sinful self, my rebellious self was crucified on the cross with Christ. He died for me. When Christ was crucified, I was crucified with Him. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life that now defines Paul and defines you as a Christian, if you are a Christian, if your faith and your trust is in Christ on the basis of what He has done for you alone, then the life that you now live is defined by the life of Christ. The life of Christ coming out in you, filling you, being the driving force of all things within you. All the works that you now do, you're living to God. It's because of Christ's life in you. Him, being, him indwelling you by the power of the Holy Spirit. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he continues, And the life I now live in the flesh, that is, the life that He still had in this world and also the life that we still have in this world, in our flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. It's no longer defined by the works that Paul could do. It's now defined by his faith, his trust in Christ and what he did on his behalf, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. I live by faith in the Son of God. Now, let what he says next to sink in. Let that sink into your minds and let it sink into your hearts. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ loved Paul. Therefore, he was crucified for Paul so that Paul could live so that Paul could have life. Christ gave Himself for Paul so that he could live. And He's done the same for you, Christian. Jesus Christ, in His life and in His death, when He was being crucified, when He went through that horrific display of God's wrath and our sin, He wasn't begrudgingly hanging there saying, you know what, I don't like this, I don't like these good-for-nothing sinners who are ungrateful, who care nothing about what I'm doing. They don't even understand what I'm doing, but you know what? I'm just going to die for them anyways because I'm obeying my Father. That's not what He was doing. That's not the attitude that He had. Yes, He, he despised the shame of the cross. He says so. But love was driving Him. Love for His Father and His glory primarily, but also love for you. He had in His mind and on His heart all those that He would die for in that moment. When Christ died on the cross, when He was crucified, if you are a Christian, He had you in mind. He loved you and He gave Himself for you so that you may have life in Him. And then Paul concludes defending this, this criticism that these people were making, the Judaizers, the false brothers there in Antioch. 
He concludes by saying, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law or justification, for if righteousness or justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Again, on the contrary, Paul's saying, I'm not the one who's nullifying or making little of, belittling. I'm not the one who's doing those things to the grace of God. In fact, it's you who's saying that you can obtain righteousness through works. Because if you can obtain righteousness or right standing with God through works, then what did Jesus have to come for? Why did He have to die? If you can obtain it, if you can work for it, you don't need Christ. You make little of Christ and God's grace that He has given on your behalf. You make little of it. If you say to yourself, I don't need Jesus, I got my works, what I do is impressive and it will get me into heaven, you're saying, I don't need Christ and I make little of His grace. Paul, on the other hand, is doing the exact opposite. He's saying, you can't work for righteousness. You failed. The only hope you have is in Christ and it's in Him alone. It's in God's grace that He has provided through Him. And so therefore, Paul, in fact, makes much of God and he makes much of His grace because it's only found in Him. Because there's only one gospel and that gospel teaches that a person is only justified before God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the basis of His works, and it all results to God's glory alone. Meditate on that, Christian. On the days when you wake up and you don't feel like a Christian, and if I had to guess, if you're anything like me, they are many On the days when you wake up and you don't feel like a Christian, don't think to yourself, well, if I do this and this, that's what puts me in right standing with God. That's what makes me feel better. Instead, preach the gospel to yourself. Christ loved me and He gave Himself for me. He knew what He was getting when He died for you. He knew He was getting a mess. An imperfect mess. So on those days, don't lean to works. Don't cling to works. Cling to Christ. Preach the gospel. Christ has loved me. Continues to love me. He has given Himself for me. My righteousness is where Christ is. And nothing can be taken away from it, nor can anything be added to it. Now next week, whenever we pick back up in chapter 3, Paul is going to address the Galatians once again directly with his his statement, O foolish Galatians. And he's going to begin to unfold to them that the Bible, Scripture, the Old Testament, the law, it's always said this. It's always pointed forward to Christ. And that's what we're going to pick up. That's where we're going to pick up next week. Our Father in heaven, we come before you and oh, how we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
repeating what Paul said there in, in verse twenty in verse twenty, talking about Jesus who, who loved us and gave himself for us. Our justification, our right standing with God, our freedom is found in him and it's found in him alone. I pray that those who are in Christ who are Christians would know that they would preach it to themselves. And for those who may not be in Christ, for those who may not be a Christian, I pray that you would convict them with this truth, that you would pierce their heart with it, and they would know and understand that righteousness is not found in anything that I can do, but it's found in Jesus alone. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.